Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, and welcome to The Chat Returns a mini-series of conversations about our relationships with the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader, and I've seen the lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I've been howling for more. So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. Michael, it's lovely to be here in the, the warm world of The Chat Returns. Uh, filled with lots of wonderful guests from the world of animation, uh, from Studio Ghibli to academics to journalists and storytellers in themselves outside of Ghibli. Today we're talking to Will Collins, and we've actually spoken about one of his films before. In fact, we've spoken about one of his films twice before. Uh, he is, of course, one of the writers of Wolf Walkers, the cartoon saloon film, and we've just spent the last couple of months, having a lovely journey through the world of Cartoon Saloon. Absolutely. And along the way, not only did we theorise about some potential Ghibli inspirations and influences on the films of Cartoon Saloon, but we also had like literally from Tom Moore and Ross Stewart explanations of how much impact the Studio Ghibli films have on Cartoon Saloon's work. But it's always interesting for us to talk with the writers in the room because we love talking with animators, the people who literally draw what we see on screen. But sometimes it's fun to hear an English language or Western point of view on the stories that Ghibli tell and how they're constructed, how they're made. And Will gives us a fantastic insight into that, I think. And not only that, he has reshaped the narrative that we thought we knew about Cartoon Saloon, or at least his relationship to Cartoon Saloon, because we presented a story in our Song of the Sea episode about how Will and the studio came together. And that was not the case. And we've never been happier to be corrected on an email because that has led to a wonderful conversation. I mean, you say, Jake, you've never been happier. My ego was bruised by one of the actual personalities in one of my context uh, sections saying that I got it wrong. Uh, but it was really good to then be able to set the record straight almost immediately with such a uh, such an affable guest. Yes, uh, Will is such a, a lovely chap. And the recording of this one was a bit of a challenge for various uh, internet issues, uh, but we do hope you stick with it because Will, as you might expect for such a, a brilliant storyteller, 
knows how to tell a story. And uh, this was just such a wonderful conversation to have. And we do get into the Studio Ghibli influences on his work, as well as some other influences that maybe you're not expecting too. But just before we cut to that interview, there is some other important news that we do briefly have to talk about, Michael, which is much like Aiden in The Secret of Kells, we've been working on our own text, haven't we, Michael? A sacred text. <laughs> Ghibli Tech, the unofficial guide to Studio Ghibli, our adaptation of all the conversations we've had on this podcast over the last co- couple of years, revisiting the films, going deeper and deeper into the context and the history, but also Jake writing his reviews, not just as a first-time viewer, but his his takes on these films now that we've seen the whole lot. We go from Now Through the Valley of the Wind to Eric and the Witch telling the full story of Ghibli. Miyazaki, Takahata, Kondo, Yonabayashi, everyone's there. Uh, It's been such a treat, and hopefully one day we'll be able to have it um, canonized and celebrated in the way that the Book of Kells is in a museum. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, I'm sure it would be, Michael. Uh, Before we reach that point, though, it is time to talk to the man who took great inspiration from My Neighbor Totoro, and brought that into so many other wonderful ideas in creating Song of the Sea and Wolfwalkers. Here he is, Will Collins. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So I hear, before we talk about anything to do with Ghibli or Cartoon Saloon going in depth, we have to set the record straight. So on our Song of the Sea episode, we had a certain origin story for how you came in contact with Tom Moore and the gang at Cartoon Saloon. And I hear a little bird told me, a little bird called Jake Cunningham, said that you said we got our facts wrong. <laughs> well, no, do you know what? Do you know what? You probably, you probably had your information right. You had your information correct, uh, according to Tom Moore. Right. But the problem is, is Tom Moore actually has his facts wrong. <laughs> this is the thing. And that was and, and I was gassed because I remember that came out in some some bit of um, press back in uh, back when Song of the Sea was being promoted. And I remember seeing that and saying, hang on a second. That's not how it went, Tom. And I said, this is going to come back and haunt me someday. People are going to be think I'm rummaging around in your uh, rubbish. What actually how I got to work with um, it was in relation to 
how I got working with Cartoon Saloon, I think, or something like that. And um, and Tom at the time had said, because when I went down to meet them, there were so many overlapping kind of coincidences that his wife said that evening, he says, are you sure he hasn't been rummaging through the rubbish, through our rubbish, you know? And But in actual fact, the serendipity was actually even more serendipitous because from my end, right, um, uh, what actually happened was I had finished my first my first kind of like feature film a script proper proper one and uh, it was done in conjunction with the Irish Film Board and they had supported the development of the screenplay so when I uh, submitted it the Irish Film Board just remember, remember this is like my first kind of like uh, script that I have ever professionally submitted to anybody anywhere and uh, I was as nervous as heck and uh, I, I, they said, oh, well, send it in. We'll take a look. And they, um, they, they, I sent it in. And on the Monday afternoon, I get a phone call. I was working in a, in a factory, in a medical device factory at the time. And I could feel my phone vibrating in my pocket. And I was going, oh, crikey. I can't. I, that could be the, the film board getting back to me, like, you know. And I couldn't, I couldn't put, take out my phone because it's against protocol. Like, so I just, like, immediately or as quickly as I could went out to the car park and answered my phone. And I saw it was from the film board and I rang it back and I said, oh, Jesus, this is going to be, they're going to, they're going to go through me and say it's a piece of crap. And the, the development executive said, he said, listen, I just want, I wanted to call, I finished reading your script at 2, 2 a.m. last night and I wanted to call you because I've never cried at a screenplay before. And this is like the first screenplay I've, I've cried at. And I just want to say that uh, I want to help get this film made and I want to, you know, support you and uh, to, to get this, to get this made. And he said, take this from me you will this will never happen to you again you will never get uh you know such an endorsement again and he was absolutely right i never got such a kind of a an easy green light as it is but what happened where, where we're going to with this is that what happened was within a week nearly every production company in the country was ringing me saying wanting to meet me wanted to meet me to potentially option my script and i had to use my annual leave days to go and take these meetings and very quickly my annual leave, leave days just disappeared so i just had no choice i was like going oh crap i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to actually jump jump into this whole world here without actually having an option without having a, 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 a you know the thing wasn't sold in any way shape or form so i had to quit my job so there i was i quit my job and I was, it was my first week as an unemployed screenwriter. With a screenplay, yeah, I was taking meetings and, you know, things were looking hopeful. But I was just going, what do I do now? I was going through a, a big Ghibli phase at the time. And uh, I, was, I had really kind of gotten on that bandwagon for a good, you know, maybe 10 years before that. And I just thought, I was, I'd watched, showed my wife, my, my, my girlfriend then, my no wife. I'd shown her Totoro. And I said, you know what I'd love to do? I'd love to do, like, a beautiful hand-drawn animated movie like set in Ireland having this kind of like lovely kind of cross-Atlantic kind of vibe so, something Amblin-esque you know and um and I said but that's never going to happen now this is my first week as an unemployed screenwriter I literally went into my office and or turned on my computer and there was an email from Ross Murray who was a producer he was one of the co-owners of Cartoon Saloon back then and Ross said hi we're a small studio in Kilkenny called Cartoon Saloon and we're finishing our first film called The Secret of Kells and we're looking to get a writer on board for our next feature uh, called, uh, we're going to call it Song of the Sea and the Irish Film Board have recommended you to talk to. And I just went, first of all, I went Secret of Kells. Don't like the title. <laughs> so, so I went and I googled the Secret of Kells and I saw they had a conceptual trailer out and the, 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 on YouTube at the time. And as soon as I saw the conceptual trailer, I just went, 
that's it. That's this is that's the thing I'm thinking of. This is the style and this is the type of world that I'd love to work in. And so I immediately said, oh, great, I'll come down. So I was in Galway at the time and uh, during Kilkenny. So uh, the following week, I headed down to Kilkenny and had a meeting with them. And uh, uh, I went into the room and there was Ross and Paul and uh, Tom was in the corner, but Tom was really quiet. He was kind of like sussing me out. So according to Tom didn't know that I, I was the one who had gotten the random email at all. I got the email out of the blue and we were in the, in, what, what happened, what was so strange was that my first feature film was set over Halloween weekend, 1987, the, the film that I was having all the, all these meetings about and Song of the Sea is set over Halloween weekend, 1987, the exact same time in the room. We were just casually talking about the stories that were in her head or things we were interested in. And I had said, I, I'd been down on uh, down in Dingle, which is down on the west coast of Ireland. A friend of mine is, lives lives down there, and um, there's these beautiful islands called the Blasket Islands, just off the coast. And one of them looks like a giant lying in repose in the out in the sea, like you know. And uh, I, there's a kind of a ghost story attached to it. And so I, you know, just being a writer, started to kind of conjure a kind of a fictitious, you know, a story in my head around that island. And I just randomly started telling them about this story I had in my head about this this man giant out in the sea. And Tom goes on the computer and they had a projector on kind of like a projector screen going. And he starts rummaging through files on the computer and he says, take a look at this. And he clicked up uh, a concept art image of that island, of that sleeping giant up on they had been he had been thinking about this sleep uh, the same sleeping giant that I was thinking about for my story. It was nuts. He was, and so we were both kind of going, Jesus, that's freaking weird. But we had so many kind of serendipitous uh, coincidences. It did feel like, are you like? I suppose he was totally in his right to go home that night and say, "Holy moly, we had a meeting with this lad today," and there was so, there was a lot of stuff that was overlapping. And it, but I'll tell you, it was more serendipitous for me. Um, so yeah, that's that's the actual that's the actual origin story. I, I love that uh, you know we're talking with a screenwriter, and already we have almost a Rashomon effect, multiple clashing <laughs> plot lines depending on the perspective of the teller. Already, it's just almost <laughs> too perfect. So, Will, uh, you have got your own podcast called The Best Bits, where you highlight the best bits from different areas of film, whether that might be a very specific genre or a specific actor. And you've already mentioned uh, the name there, Ghibli. And of course, this is the Ghibliotech. So uh, I wondered if you could tell us your best bits of Studio Ghibli. Oh, golly. It, that's that's one of the, you know, I found with doing the podcast, the best bits, it's kind of torturous when you get a topic in which you have so much to say, because it's really hard to whittle down the thing you love the most, you know, and there's because there's so much you want to say about that thing. Usually it's great to get a topic that you really don't care about. And uh, it's because there's because you can just get to the get to the punch pretty quickly. And for me, Studio Jubilee is one of those topics that, you know, it's a bit of a torture to ask me what's my best bit of uh, Studio Jubilee. But if, I, if you force me to and you twist my arm, the first thing I would think of, and maybe the most basic answer, but it's an honest answer, is the is from my neighbor Totoro. And it's the scene where um, the two sisters are waiting at the bus stop, and it's the bus stop scene from um, from 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 that film. And the reason I love it is because it goes against everything that we see in you know Western animated films, especially stuff coming out of America, where it's just a scene of two girls. There's a, it, it's so filled with humanism. They're just two girls 
out in the rain at a bus stop waiting for a bus. And it just lingers there for the longest time, just relishing in the space and the nature of that world because it's a living, breathing world. And then, you know, you just have this strange, magical, 20-foot huge um, spirit creature, you know, appear beside them. And it's the epitome of what I love about them, that studio's film filmmaking. It's not the fantastical. It's not the, the, the stuff where we see amazing magic and amazing um, animation. It's where we see the humanity in action. That's what I love about the Studio Ghibli stuff. And in that in that moment, we see, you know, the, the little girl, she, she gives, you know, the, the raindrops are falling on big old Totoro's head and dropping on his nose. And he's a little bit, you know, annoyed and the only way he could be annoyed by just kind of like frowning and looking up. And she passes him a, an umbrella and he makes this wonderful, playful moment by like, you know, just jumping up and all the raindrops fall from all the leaves and trees. And again, you can feel this world feels real. and. And then the bus shows up and it happens to be a cat bus. And hey, you know, <laughs> but again, it's the humanism because the way the, the, the way the filmmaking approaches it or the characters deal with that scenario is they kind of take it. It's a very sincere way, uh, you know, approach to, let's say, how a child would see the world and how they react, how she reacts to it is just like, OK, that's a cat bus, you know, <laughs> and, and kids don't over question these things. It's beautiful. So um, that would be my my kind of like favorite moment from studio ghibli i mean yeah absolutely speaking our language there will because this whole podcast from the beginning has been listed with those moments where jake and i just say this bit right here is so magical but magical in a way that is so tied to reality in the world around us that you know who hasn't been waiting at the bus stop and been in that very situation and if you're an imaginative sort maybe wondered what could be coming down the road in the darkness in the rain ahead of you and actually, I think it was probably in our Song of the Sea episode that we we drew a line between that film and Ghibli in the sense that it's a world where it's recognisable as our own, but the magic could just come around the corner. You're only ever just a few footsteps away from something magical, from the folklore, from the, from nature, from the past. And was that when when you started working on that film and you said you had Ghibli in mind and Totoro in mind, was that something you wanted to bring to that? To that film absolutely it was a touchstone totoro was definitely a touchstone for myself and tom when we were working on um, song of the sea and in actual fact we have a moment in song of the sea that i remember writing and kind of like flagging to tom tom to say this is our our bus stop moment or, or as close as we dare to get to it and it's when the, the two kids end up in the little um wishing well you know, before Sirius kind of she she jumps into the into the water, and there's a moment with cows, and there's just a moment of them kind of going across nettles where she's where Ben is actually carrying Sirius on his back. If you notice the kind of the similarity, and it's that moment where nature is very much present in their world. You know, it's their obstacle is like regular thistles that prick the prick his legs as he's going across. But also, we kind of there's a there's a couple of lingering shots on cows and cows kind of looking in at them, but they're also kind of other you know, story similarities in the fact that in uh, in Totoro, uh, we have, they have a, a mother who's gravely ill or seriously ill in hospital anyway. And in Song of the Sea, we have a mother who is unfortunately quite deceased. They're both stories are totally told from the child's point of view. And um, 
and yeah, there's it really influenced. It was a touchstone for us, even though we didn't try and mirror its story or mirror its. But there was a kind of there's a kind of a there's a texture or tonal kind of similar. I wouldn't even say though, but there's a kind of a texture similarities between the two films, definitely. Thinking about your work collaborating with Tom and Ross, and what is there when you start, uh, and you're kind of working from there outline i guess what is it that i suppose you bring to what they're doing and what they bring to what you're doing in terms of like those the big themes the big ideas the visual motifs where does will roll into what they're doing yeah so basically in the case of uh in the case of wolf walkers tom and ross had the idea because they wanted to collaborate after um they had done a, a piece of an anthology film uh, for The Prophet. And they said, look, why Tom, they said, well, why don't we co-direct the next feature? And they were mulling over what it could be. And they came across this they kind of came across this local myth of the Wolves of Ossery and also the interesting setting of like Cromwellian era Ireland. And the fact that where their studio was set, they have it was the focal point of a lot of action, like, you know. So they had the, the brilliant idea of setting a story there, but not only that, but setting the story uh, about a wolf hunter who comes over with his son, because it was uh, initially a, um, his son was Robin. Uh, Robin was 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 a boy, and um, about them in, encountering this uh, wolf walker myth. And um, so they kind of had when I when I came aboard, they had like a one page outline, which was you know it was fairly basic, like you know, but there was like a, a beginning, middle, and end of kind of you got a sense of the scope and the type of story that they wanted to tell but from an outline you know it's an outline is just a one page outline you still have a lot of building to do so when i came on board i pretty much start focused on okay where's the the meat where's the emotional where's the emotion and where's the drama and where's the character drama and where are the character arcs so i come in very much focusing on the character story and 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 building structure of the story and building the the the, the, the screenplay and um, essentially and right from the get-go we had a meeting i always remember my very first meeting on wolfwalkers which was in march of 2013 and we from that very first day of meeting, we kind of had put down the, the the kind of the the the, the ten poles of what the, the basic tenets of the story would be, or the basic beats of the story would be, and it was essentially a coming of age story about a kid who has to come to terms with the fact that he's not living up to uh, the he's, the expectations of his father, and has to break away from that. Um, and actually, not only that, but he has to fundamentally real, realize that maybe his father's whole entire philosophy in the universe is completely wrong. And that was kind of it was big, and that was uh, it was a great starting point for the first draft. And very, I think I worked on an outline for we kind of outlined back and forth. So it was a very collaborative affair. Um, where we would, I would be on, we would be on Skype, and we would have a, a a document open between us, like a Google Doc or something like that, and we could just, we could just, um, you know, um, knock out the outline together, if you know what I mean. We would, we would just hammer the beats, the bullet points of what could happen here and there, and all that sort of jazz. And basically, when we got to the point where we were happy enough with the shape of the outline, then I would just go away and, uh, you know, lock the door to my room and just write for a couple of months. And just build a draft, write a draft, and come come back from that. And we would basically start the whole the the draft would be analysed, and we would start the whole process again of just breaking down the draft and 
you know, bringing in notes and, and rebuilding the whole thing up from scratch again. And as we moved forward in the drafts, eventually we got to the point where we could bring in more people, like the story the story team and the storyboard artists came on board. Um, the editors were obviously building an animatic as well with the storyboard team. And, um, uh, you know, so, it, you know, as we went along, more and more people joined the conversation, as you can imagine. And that was it, but it still remains the same kind of cycle only with more people each time <laughs> of like, here's a new draft. Okay, more notes. Uh, let's go back to, okay, what do we need to fix? Okay, let's go back and fix it and do it all again. Officially, I did it like five times, I think. But I think overall, we did it like nine times. So we had nine drafts, I think. And how, how long did it take for those nine drafts from start to finish? So basically, I started in... Oh I, oh, I can tell you when I started writing the first pages, actually, as a matter of fact. I literally started writing the first pages of Wolfwalkers on the flight back from the world premiere of song of the sea in toronto um, wow yeah so like i yeah it was mad it's it was a mad experience and um and i was i was just pumped i was ready to go i was ready to write it and we basically it would have been locked when we did uh, the voice record which was in july of 2018 so the premiere was in september of 2014 i'd imagine maybe it was like I think I'm, I'm, let's say I'll, I'm going to say August of September of, of 2014 or September to 2018. So that's about four, four years, I suppose, of all those, four years. Yeah, that's what it was. That's such a long process. And we talk a lot on this podcast about Ghibli's approach to story and, and script writing in particular, and how Hayao Miyazaki has his very specific way of doing it from Porco Rosso onwards in the early 90s they would start animation when only maybe a third or two thirds of the script was finished and they'll just get to the ending halfway through production. And that, that means that films like Spirited Away could change direction dramatically in terms of the story. I think that's one where they were halfway through animating it and he hadn't finished the ending and he realized that the film would be three or four hours long if he put all of his ideas to paper. So they suddenly said, you'll have to cut out all that <laughs> and refocus. It's incredible. It's incredible. Like it's, I'm, I'm so glad he does make his films that way because they have, all of his films have an unexpected quality to them. Like you never know how any of these films are going to end because he never knows how they're going to end <laughs> when he's starting them. So, like, so there's a delight in that. There's a real delight in that because it feels like a stream of consciousness. Only he's got an army of animators and years and a, and a, and a pretty big, decent budget. We wouldn't have been able to do that. And it wouldn't be economical for us to be able to make the film that way. We just, you know, you need a lot more money <laughs> to go about making the film that way. And a lot more time as well, you know, a lot more time. So we were kind of, I suppose, our philosophy was we were kind of bridging the divide. Even back in Song of the Sea, we very much were looking at Pixar because Pixar were at the, the, the pinnacle of their success. They had done their, their, their 10 in a row. And, you know, I think Up was coming out when we were still in development. And um, I remember just we, we kind of really studied how they approached story development as well, where they would have that brain trust aspect. And we did, we did definitely lean into that brain trust aspect where... I would send, like Tom had his trusted collaborators like outside of the studio that he would send the script out to and or the animatic out doing and receive notes from. And I had like a couple of friends that I would send the script to, very close friends and get notes from them as well. And you'll see their names. And if you look at the, you know, probably at the closing credits, you'll see all their names listed in the thanks. Um, but it, so it was very much like a, not a hive mind, but we were trying to engage a kind of a very loose brain trust with the development of the story. We didn't really know what we were doing on Song of the Sea 
we're definitely both Tom and myself were on our second features and you know very young and still learning the ropes and we always are learning the ropes but for Wolfwalkers I felt far more confident in my storytelling ability and I think everyone did the big difference um, between the two developments they're, they're hugely totally different but in Song of the Sea we had a very clear from the very outset we had a very clear uh, I had a very clear uh, idea of what the tone of the film was and I got that from Tom had, they were creating a conceptual trailer for Song of the Sea, just like a scene. It's the one you see on the internet. If you ever Google Song of the Sea conceptual trailer, that's the one they were making when I came on board. There was no story. There was like, again, a kind of a rough kind of like idea. It was just like, it, it, was, it wasn't any way close to it, something that was an actual story. But the music that they were using for that conceptual trailer was a piece of music that was uh, an unreleased piece of music by Keela. Uh, the band and as soon as I heard that piece of music I just went I get it I know what this film feels like and even though Song of the Sea was a very tumultuous development where we were both kind of like flying by the seat of our pants and trying to figure out what this what it was going to be the exact opposite happened on Wolfwalkers where in Wolfwalkers we came out of our first meeting going right we know what the story is but we never actually agreed on what the tone of the film would be there was no kind of like kind of like locked in kind of like feeling of what the tone of the film was. So I when I wrote my very first draft, it was very dark. I wrote a very dark kind of like and I knew I intentionally did it as well because I wanted to push I wanted to push the canvas because I knew it was the first pass. I knew I was going to get another shot at it. And I wanted to push the canvas that far and see how far we could push this kind of like this um this kind of like darker more not mature but like a, a heavier kind of story and a more action packed story. And then as we went along, we dialed it back and we basically just kind of recalibrated. But it took us a few drafts to find the right balance and tone for Wolfwalkers versus on Song of the Sea. Well, you've you've mentioned Pixar and you've mentioned two pillars of Michael and my uh, kind of cinephilic world, which is, uh, well, Hayao Miyazaki and Ghibli, but also Amblin and Steven Spielberg, who I love dearly. And I, I just wanted to know kind of, who, who are your guys? Who are the people that you kind of ca- carry with you all the time that you're looking back to um, for inspiration in, in just the way that you tell your stories? I honestly would say for filmmakers, um, I would say the Coen brothers. Um, and it, that's not to say that any of my stuff is like any of the Coen brothers films. It's not. But I love the way the Coen brothers uh, constantly surprise uh, audiences. And I love the way they're always... They're always been playful, um, even when they're being serious. They're still messing with the form. They're still going, wouldn't this be? Wouldn't it be cool if we did this? And they're screwing with everyone. They're screwing with themselves. They're constantly making compelling, beautiful, thoughtful um, fables. All of their films, to me, are fables, Mor- uh, moralistic, uh, almost biblical tales, like you know, from the Old Testament sort of stuff. And um, like, of course, I I, I have a deep rooted love for Spielberg as well, but. I think you know now as a as a middle aged man as I can probably officially can call myself. It's the Coen Brothers are the ones I feel I feel I have a kind of a I have a, a deep admiration for, and uh, I love going to their stuff and love how they write their characters and write their dialogue and yeah, they're my favorite kind of like consistently favorite um, pair of filmmakers. So um, yeah, I'm just not an animation guy. <laughs> That's the only thing. So we've mentioned uh, Ghibli, we've mentioned My Neighbor Totoro, we've mentioned Spirited Away. Um, Miyazaki films that are kind of live long in the mind and have 
kind of connected to audiences worldwide and are hugely successful. But we love highlighting the kind of the underrated gems of the Ghibli canon as well. Michael's maybe Michael's favorite film of all time is Whisper of the Heart. And we will um, tell anyone that we can about Only Yesterday and any other deeper cuts that we like. Um, I'd love to know any Ghibli lesser known films that are favorites for you. Oh, well, I'm, I, you know what? A, a, an embarrassing ad, a admission, and I'm going to rectify it soon, is that I haven't seen Whisper of the Heart. I haven't seen it, and I must see it, and I don't know why I haven't. But from an under, uh, the underrated uh, person, of course, uh, you know, is, is the filmmaker Isayo Takahata. I actually had the pleasure of meeting him a couple of times, not only meeting him, but actually sitting very close to him when uh, watching The Tale of Princess Kaguya. He was just like a few people over to my right. And I remember having this amazing moment of going, oh my God, there he is. And he made this, and I was in floods. In the first 10 minutes, I was in floods of tears watching that film. It was just, oh, it's so beautiful. And I really want to shine a light on uh, Takahara because I think, you know, the the quality, as I already mentioned, the quality I love about the Studio Ghibli uh, films is their 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 ability to convey uh, humanity and portray humanity in a in a very real and tender and loving way but takahata's films i feel are the ones that actually have the greatest deal of humanity grave of the fireflies um taylor princess kaguya my underrated gem is one of his films and it's from 1999 and it's my neighbor the yamadas and i think that's a lovely delightful uh you know watercolor uh, little just just it's a slice of life it's a slight it's not fancy it's not uh you know it's, it's not a big spectacle it's a grounded you know story about this little family and their their annoyances with one another, one another but it's utterly delightful and that's the one i would recommend everyone to just um Give it, give it a shot because no one ever talks about my neighbor DM at us. Yeah, that, that recommendation just about makes up for the fact that you've not seen Whisper of the Heart, Will. <laughs> I don't know how I haven't seen it. <laughs> you pulled it back. It's surely on Netflix. It has to be on Netflix. It is on Netflix. And if we're talking about best bits, that's one that has so many single moments that are so wonderful. I won't spoil any or tell tell you about any. I'll go away and watch it and we'll, we can confer afterwards. But wow, that must be amazing to have met Takahata um what do you talk to him about we didn't speak much because he um we were in each other's sphere um a a, a lot one day because we we all went to this um we went uh, during during the that 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 um premiere of um kaguya was also the same same weekend as the premiere of song of the sea so we were kind of in each other's sphere but we didn't like you know we never properly had a conversation but then it was actually at the oscars when um the following january it was so weird again to bump into him again because we were we were at the Oscar luncheon together, and um, so and the weird thing about going to the Oscar luncheon, the Oscar luncheon is kind of like the best bits of the Oscars, right? Only without the Oscars because it's um, a thing that happens two weeks before the Oscars happen, and it's where all the nominees and only the nominees are in are in a kind of a room where they explain the the the, the rules and the kind of the the running of the show. But and there's no press, so there's no kind of like publicity and all this sort of stuff. And everyone's very relaxed and everyone's kind of like chatting amongst each other. And I got to meet like all load of celebrities. But the gas thing about it was, is that all of a sudden in this room full of celebrities like Clint Eastwood and Bradley Cooper and Steve Carell and Oprah and all that sort of stuff. All of a sudden, the animation guys kind of hung out with each other 
with this guy because we were kind of like, oh, we're the animation guys, you know? So it was kind of, you'd see each other across the room. It was like, going, oh, Jesus, there's Travis Knight. Oh, how are you, Travis? <laughs> you know? and, um, or, so um, Takahata was there with, um, with his translator and his producer as well. So I actually was ch- chatting to his producer, but like I spoke to Takahata tr- via his translator and just thanked him for his films and just said, just basically said what a fan would say with a few sentences. And he was graciously, he bowed and graciously said, oh, I really appreciate it or whatever it was. He, you know, it wasn't a conversation, but it was, but we, with the gas, we were in each other's sphere loads that day. So he, but he was a, he was a sprightly, like he was in his eighties, I'm sure at that stage. Um, but he was so sprightly and so fresh and he was, wasn't, had no intention of like retiring. He was still making films that's for certain so um jesus i'm sorry i went off on a tangent there I no no i i love that you describe the oscar nominees luncheon almost like a big like high school lunch room it was yeah. with all of like the arts art student nerds in the corner together yeah <laughs> and they're like the most high profile it's like all of a sudden these high profile figures in the animation industry all of a sudden become the nerds <laughs> and, and you kind of cling to each other and that's basically oh there there's i don't know who, who else did I mean? anyway there was a load of little um yeah we were distracted by all the amazing hollywood stars and stuff like that but uh yeah it was fun it was a lot of fun well you mentioned the name travis knight there which maybe links into the next question that we've got for you and it's something that we've asked a lot of our guests on this show is because we've reached the end of studio ghibli we're caught up with all their films uh we've now watched all of cartoon saloons we've watched all of satoshi Kon's films we're looking for our next thing to dive into have you got a recommendation for who we could be exploring next whether that's a studio a director someone that you think deserves the uh the ghibliotech analysis okay you know what i only briefly thought about this because you've already kind of covered some big hitters right and i i'll i'd nudge you a little bit mainstream and a little bit someone who maybe has been overlooked because of his recent films but have you considered Gendy Tartakovsky? You know what? So, Jake, I don't think you've watched much Tartakovsky, have you? We've mentioned his name a lot. I've not, no. So no. You're, you're just slightly too young to have got his stuff in the 90s. You would have just missed out on Samurai Jack. However, um, well, I've, I've been recommending Primal to um, Jake and our co-host, Steph. So that's just gone on all four the Channel 4 streaming service over here. And it's just like Gendy Tartakovsky smashing his action figures together. <laughs> it's really so action-packed and amazing yeah I, I i i love his work um i think he's definitely on the long list he's full of energy he's he's his style his animation style is so ballsy and the samurai jack stuff the early scenes the early series like he, you know it's really it's really brave it's really bold and um Oh, like he had. Um, I know he's done the the Hotel Transylvania films, but I'd love to have seen his 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 um, dropped Popeye film. I think that would have been amazing. It, there's like a little teaser trailer of that, isn't there, out there? I've seen, which looks amazing. Okay, so let's let's add that to the list, Jake. I, I can lobby for that. Well, thank you so much for that recommendation. Uh, yeah, another one to add to the never-ending watch list, and for going deep into your process with Cartoon Saloon and everything that you get from the works of Studio Ghibli as well and for for thankfully adding another name to the list of champions for my neighbours the Yamadas you're in fine company that was um Domi Shi the director of Bao and Pixar's upcoming film Turning Red she picked that one as well great and uh, thanks for having me on and anyone who's listening to this and enjoyed listening to this make sure you uh, subscribe to the best bits pod it's a fantastic new fun, films are fun podcast with me and uh, screenwriter Kevin Lee Hand we're all grabbers <laughs> plug done 
<laughs> well plugged. Thank you, Will. Thank you so much, Will, for spending that time with us. Michael, this Gendy Tartakovsky. Mm-hmm. People mention him. We've been asking about what should we be doing next on the podcast. This is a name that keeps cropping up. Should I be worried? Well, it depends how much you love the Hotel Transylvania trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> but as, as I said to Will, I love his TV series. I think that he has been innovating for the last, whatever, now 25 years, having a hand in so many great Cartoon Network series, even into the present day with something like Primal on Adult Swim. But yeah, his his big features are the Hotel Transylvania <laughs> films. So we might need to break a bit out of the format of only covering features if we're um, if we're going to do Gendy Tartakovsky. But maybe listeners, let us know if you think that's a good route for us to take in the future. And if our episode made you want to hear more from Will, and why wouldn't it? Make sure you check out The Best Bits, his superb podcast with Kevin Lahane. Uh, it is just an absolute joy to listen to. would heartily recommend it to all of our listeners. And if you want to keep up with us, you can do that on Twitter. We are at Ghibliotech, or you can email us as well at ghibli at little.studios.com. If you want to keep up with us individually, though, you can always find Michael on Twitter at Michael J. Leader. And you can follow Jake at Jake H. Cunningham. Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. Our music is made by Anthony Ng, our artwork is by Sophie Mo, and the show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill, and Steph Watts. That's me. I'm the editor as well. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 